I want to begin with a bit of a confession. I am an Anglophile, raised by an Anglophile, from a family of Anglophiles who came from England. I have a stiff upper lip, and I know how to keep calm. My great-grandfather came from Nottingham. Yes, the Nottingham. I like to think that he was one of the merry men. As a college student, it was not unheard of for me to visit a British tea room or tea room store that was just off campus shopping for Christmas presents for my mom, my aunt, my grandmother. And you would occasionally find me there or somewhere in Philadelphia having tea with my aunt and grandmother. Now hold off, Justin, until I ask you. Uh, But one of the highlights of growing up was actually something on my mother's side of the family that we called the Queen's Tea. Now, the Queen's Tea was an annual celebration of Queen Elizabeth II's official birthday. More on that later. And my family would gather to dress up and say things like pip-pip and cheerio and uh, have tea and biscuits and cucumber sandwiches Uh, So I thought I would completely humiliate myself and show you some photos from uh, some of those events. So let's go ahead and show us the first one. This is my aunt, my Aunt Linda. On these occasions, she was known as Lady Jane. Uh, Then we have the year when my dad uh, was the Bobby, and I was the Queen's gamekeeper, hence the leopard on my shoulders. And, and then we, I want you to get a sense of the grand scale of the spread. The woman with the sash. Yes, yes. I almost went to prom in that one year. Uh, but the, the, the woman in the sash there uh, to my right, that's, that's my grandmother. She was the queen mom. And uh, so that was our tradition for, for many years. You know, one year... My aunt actually wrote the queen to invite her. And we got a reply from one of her ladies-in-waiting who politely and graciously declined the invitation. <laughs> when, my own, when my grandmother, the queen mom, uh, died almost two years ago, it felt like the queen had passed. And I titled the message at her service, God Saved the Queen. Yes, I will be watching tomorrow, as I have Mondays and Tuesdays off, so worked out well. You know, in the wake of the Queen's passing, I've learned that not everyone was as fond of her as my family and I were, and I'm not going to get into that, I'm not going to take time to comment on that now, but it does raise the question of worthiness. Today, more than ever, our society gives away its worship far too cheaply, and it takes it back just as easily. We don't really understand worship, who it's for, who it's not for, what worship is, why it is so essential to who we are as created human beings. So this morning, we're going to talk about that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this morning... We do turn our hearts and minds towards you. There's been so much going on. Lord, we just pray that you will help us for these next few minutes at least 
to turn our focus and attention towards you, towards your word, as it's been given to us through your servant Moses. Lord, uh, we pray that you would speak to us now. Challenge us, convict us, comfort us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get to our main passage, I'd like to read from Exodus chapter 20, so a little bit earlier. Uh, So you can find that on page 64 uh, in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Again, if you are uh, new with us, you may not know this, but our tradition is if you don't have a copy of God's Word in your own home, please take that one with you this morning as our gift. But we are going to be in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. We're reading from the CSB translation. All of, our, all of our passages this morning are from the CSB. That's the translation you have in your hands and the pews in front of you. Uh, but would you please stand as we read this particular passage as it is read for us. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the Father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy." May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So let's start there. What is worship? If it's something that's so easily misunderstood, misapplied today, what biblically can we say worship is? And so I thought I'd take some material from Discover LBC. Discover LBC is a four-part series. We teach one part a month, usually around the first Sunday of the month. It's meant for new members, for people who are thinking about joining, new to the church in some way. Long-time members, by the way, you are always more than welcome. If you'd like to kind of take a little break from your normal ABF and, and kind of just tune in on something, you're like, yeah, what, what are the elders teaching new people about that? Or where did that come from? It's always helpful, even if you've been here a couple decades. But we have one of those parts about the seek the Lord, seek the Lord in worship, um, that that focuses on this topic, and, and it does a, a nice job of, of addressing what is worship. And so, in Discover LBC, the elders present worship as fully encompassing and all-consuming, fully encompassing and all-consuming. 
So to break that down, uh, that means that God, through our worship, receives our supremacy, our priority. Uh, I believe it's Brother Wayne, maybe some others you've heard this from. Uh, When does Sunday worship begin? Saturday night. Saturday night is when you're preparing for Sunday morning. So how late are you up? I won't ask the D-Now crowd that question. (laughs) You you guys get a pass, a pass from that this weekend, okay? Supremacy, priority. You're You're saying by when you go to bed and what you're doing Saturday evening, you're saying how important Sunday morning is and being ready for it. What's the supremacy and importance of the Lord in your life? We just read the Ten Commandments. It's a perfect example of this. Worship is, is all-encompassing, all-consuming, because it involves our submission and obedience. Perfect example of this, Genesis chapter 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac. If you want a visual for that, go down the children's hallway, uh, and you'll see a wonderful painting of this scene. But submission and obedience. Abraham worshiped the Lord by being obedient to sacrifice the life of his own son. And it was only when that was abundantly clear as the knife was about to plunge into his son's chest that the Lord cried out to him from heaven and said, no, don't do that, and made it, made it plain that he had provided the ram in the thicket. But he worshiped, Abraham did, through his submission and obedience. We do it through our passion, our, our satisfaction in the Lord. That, In other words, even if all else was taken from me, I would still have the Lord and find my satisfaction in him and passion for him. Psalm 63 verses 1 through 8 is a great example of this. So I wanted to bring that passage to your attention. There we read, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you. In a land that is dry, desolate, and without water, So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Now, hold up. Wait a minute. Psalm 63 seems to be saying that God's presence is better than chocolate. I know, some idols are being torn down this morning. But God's presence satisfies me like rich food. It's, It's better than Eric's roast pig. It's better than Vicky's crab dip. Yep, I said it. Actually, the Bible said it. Continuing in verse 6, when I think of you as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches because you are my helper. I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. I will, I follow close to you. Your right hand holds on to me. That is a, a passionate relationship with the Lord that finds satisfaction in him above all else. Worship is all-encompassing and all-consuming because it it determines and defines our identity and our lifestyle. Think about 1 Peter or 1 John or the Sermon on the Mount, how these passages teach us to shape our identity towards who we are in Christ. In 1 Peter, telling us 
to live a life that draws attention to the Lord, that we just demonstrate our faith, the hope we have in Christ. First John telling us there's no room for friendship with the world and friendship with God. You have to make a choice. And so choose and shape your identity around Christ. It's the basis of our worldview. Deuteronomy 6 verses 1 through 9, which we'll get into a little bit later, call us to know that the Lord is one and that he is worthy of all of our worship. You see, worship is not about you. It's not about me. It's not for us. It's for the Lord. It's, it's about him. We gather this time each Sunday morning to worship an audience of one. I don't know if you've heard that phrase about, referred to about God before, but uh, th- this should radically change how you experience corporate worship and redefine your expectations for worship in general. Let me just give you some notes from a, someone who is occasionally on the praise team and in the choir. We are not singing to you. Yes, we're sharing the talents and abilities that God has given us, and we're happy to do so. And also hear this, particularly during the congregational singing that we were just doing a moment ago, but from the perspective of the praise team, we are not singing for you either. It's a full participation exercise. We're not singing to perform to you. We are all, we are joining you in singing to the audience of one, to the one we are praising. So again, worship's not just what happens during this hour on a Sunday. It's so much more than that. And that's what our passage this morning is about. It, it has this common thread running throughout Exodus 23, 10 through 33. And that thread connects the passages that precede it and, and follow it. And they build upon the Ten Commandments themselves. And you know what? We find that it is all about worship, and worship is all about the Lord. So if you kept your place in Exodus 20, just flip a couple of pages over to Exodus 23, verses 10 through 33. Again, that will be on page 67 of the Pew Bibles. There Moses writes... Sow your land for six years and gather its produce. But during the seventh year, you are to let it rest and leave it uncultivated, so that the poor among your people may eat from it, and the wild animals may consume what they leave. Do not do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Do your work six day, for six days, but rest on the seventh day, so that your ox and your donkey may rest." And the son of your female slave, as well as the resident alien, may be refreshed. We worship while while we work and and even when we don't. So, worship while you work. Some of us are going to need to watch Snow White after this. One summer when I was in college... Uh, I got a job at a GE manufacturing plant. They made light bulbs. And so I was on the graveyard shift, so I'd go in. Well, I called it the graveyard shift. I guess I went in about 2 or 3 in the afternoon. And sometimes I'd stay until 1 or 2 in the morning. 
And I had about 10 lines, manufacturing lines, that I was responsible for. I was a box cutter. What I was doing was I would take, they would deliver pallets of boxes of empty light bulb glasses, and then I would go and they, I would place that box on the conveyor belt, I would cut the strap holding the box together and push it, feed it into the line. And so I'd do that from line to line to line for all 10, li- all 10 lines for about eight hours a day. And as I was doing that, I had that summer one of the most profound experiences of worship. Because after a couple of days of that, you kind of got the drill, you got the routine, right? You got the rhythm. And so I, you know, it wasn't like some other jobs where I had to really think a whole lot about what I was doing. I mean, you have to be safe. But otherwise, it's like, okay, load it, go to the next line, and kind of keep watching the lines. And so I found myself just singing different praise songs while I was going each line. I would think about Bible passages, I mean, think about theology and doctrine and kind of all those kinds of questions. I wonder what this is really like and, and so on. Um, and so I would worship while I worked. Work precedes the fall. Work glorifies God as it imprints his image on us and on creation around us. God loves work. He is continually working to sustain the existence and order of all things. In the week of creation, God rested, as we just read in Exodus 20, he rested six days, or excuse me, he worked six days and rested one. Work is good for us, and avoiding work is bad for us. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, in verses 6 and 7, and then verses 10 through 12, now we command you, brothers and sisters, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition you received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. Picking up in verse 10. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and to provide for themselves. It is good for us to work, to provide for ourselves, even as we possess, hopefully, an awareness of our dependence on God for everything. We depend on him for uh, the resources with which to work, We rely on him for someone to work for, a business, an employer, or our own business, resources, favorable weather for crops and conditions. Other than that, if you're not working a field, uh, but we rely on God for all of these things. And, And so it's important that we worship while we work. In fact, worshiping while we work means remembering who you work for. Same Apostle Paul, later in another letter, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, he wrote this, don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the Lord, or do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. Uh, So Friday afternoon, after the service, people were filing out of the sanctuary here in the foyer, and 
just kind of hanging around, seeing if anybody would want to talk. And uh, as we were talking with different people in the line, a gentleman came up to me, just tears pouring down. There weren't many dry eyes here Friday afternoon. But he, uh, he explained to me that uh, Alex Kokolios had been his boss. And he started telling stories about that. And at one point he said, you know what? It was like working for Jesus. May it be said of us all. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> now, this man was a believer. He knew quite well that Alex was not Jesus. Uh, but still, what does that tell you? That tells you that Alex in the office, around his work, co-workers, he was living out Col- Colossians 3. He was working as to the Lord in a way that would glorify him. We worship while we work, and we worship while we don't. Repeat after me. There is a God, and I'm not him. Let's try that again. There is a God, and I'm not him. See, sometimes if you find yourself a workaholic, if you find yourself thinking, oh, I just got to always do, everybody's relying on me, everybody's counting on me, then we begin to forget that there is a God and I'm not him. Rest is an act of worship because it demonstrates faith in the Lord, Jehovah Jireh. And it is an ever-present reminder that we depend on him for everything. You may recall that when Israel was on the way to Mount Sinai, they were introduced to manna, bread from heaven. And every morning it would appear on the ground like dew. The people would collect it and eat it. It spoiled if it was uneaten. And they would receive just enough for that day, their daily bread. But something different happened every Friday. The day before the Sabbath, the last day of the week, twice as much manna would appear on the ground. And it didn't spoil quite as quickly. The people were told not to go out on the Sabbath to collect the manna because no manna would be given. Of course, what did the people do? They went out on Saturday morning to collect, and there was no food. In fact, who knows, maybe they ate twice as much on Friday and, you know, thinking there would be more. In Exodus 16, verses 28 through 30, this is what the Lord had to say after they did that. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he will give you two days worth of bread. Each of you stay where you are. Parents of toddlers are like, amen? No. Uh, no one in is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. This is what rest does. It reminds us that we rely on God. That we have no fear about tomorrow because God provides. It also guards us against greed because we know we have what we need for each day, which should guard us against gluttony, guard us against uh, trying to have so much just for ourselves. So we worship while we work, 
We worship while we don't work. But we also worship God with all that we are. Jesus himself taught, of course, often on worship. Two of the most famous passages are from John chapter 4 and Mark 12. In John chapter 4, Jesus taught in verses 23 and 24 something very important that stands out as he was speaking with the Samaritan woman by the uh, well. He said, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You see, worship is so much more than just one hour and a few specific tasks. But then, and this is where we're going to build the rest of, the, of our time together in, in Mark chapter 12, in verses 29 and 30, Jesus, in answer to a question about what the greatest commandment is, uh, Jesus answered this way. He said, the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. Now, the remarkable thing is that when you read our remaining verses in Exodus 23, we see a similar range of topics, a similar selection of ways to worship. So if you'll return to me, uh, to, with me to Exodus 23, starting in verse 14, uh, we'll continue our readings and we'll see these, these four things. The first of which is are the festivals. Celebrate, in verse 14, celebrate a festival in my honor three times a year. Observe the festival of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you are to eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib because you came out of Egypt in that month. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Also, observe the festival of harvest with the first fruits of your produce from what you sow in the field. And observe the festival of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather your produce from the field. Three times a year, all your males are to appear before the Lord God. You see, by the time the Old Testament had been concluded, Israel celebrated seven major festivals. Passover, unleavened bread, that of first fruits, Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, Trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this, te- this text only speaks of three festivals, the Unleavened Bread, Harvest, which was equivalent to Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, and the Ingathering, equivalent to the Feast of Tabernacles. Every Israelite male was to appeal, appear before the Lord at all three festivals, and as fif- verse 15 commands, no one was to appear before him empty-handed. We're not going to go deeply into these festivals themselves this morning, but the evangelical commentary on the Bible makes this important note. These three festivals coincide with three major events of Israel's agricultural cycle. The unleavened bread comes at the approximate time of the beginning of the spring barley harvest. Pentecost comes along at the end of the wheat harvest six, seven weeks later. And Succoth, or the Feast of Tabernacles, comes at the end of the agricultural year after the produced harvest 
and just before the winter rains. As another commentator put it, Israel celebrated Thanksgiving three times a year. Can I get an amen? Amen. I mean, come on. Some turkey, some stuffing, three times a year. Some pecan pie. And it is pecan pie, by the way. Thank you. (laughs) So through these festivals, God was calling his people to a rhythm of sowing and reaping. All along the way, a worship... A mindset of worship was meant to form in their minds. As each year came and went, as each growing season came and went, their, by the way, which their lives were dependent upon, you know, we of the grocery store and Instacart, we have no idea what it was like to truly depend on a harvest uh, like they did. But all of this, were, they formed regular calls to turn their minds toward the Lord. And isn't that how the way it works? I don't know about you, but if, if it's not on the calendar, it's not, it's not in this mind. You know, God's people are to have their relationship with him and his word on their minds daily and hourly. Such is the all-encompassing nature of true worship. Then in verses 18 and 19, we are led to turn our attention to food. So how do you sustain your strength? Isn't it mostly through what you eat and drink? Now, my wife will tell you that she was very excited earlier this, earlier, last Monday, earlier this week, um, to reintroduce coffee to her diet. We even, you know, we made a big thing of it. We, we, we walked to the Beanery, which is a, a coffee shop we live near, and everything. Now, when you feel lightheaded or a little weak, what's happening? Blood sugar might be low, right? Got a, got a boost. Of course, for diabetics, that's a, a matter of life or death. In verses 18 and 19, we see God provide four commands related to food. Remember, obedience in God's eyes is worship. God's way is the highway over my way. Verse 18, you must not offer the blood of my sacrifices with anything leavened. Huh? What is God talking about here? A commentator named Stuart in the New American Commentary says this. He says, In an attempt to strengthen or prolong their own lives, they, that is Canaanites, started drinking or eating blood from animals, sacrificed for worship or merely for eating, performing in effect an act of what is known as sympathetic magic. This was strictly forbidden to the Israelites and even to the patriarchs long before there even was an Israel. He continues, drinking blood is somewhat, somewhat unappetizing. Huh. But using the blood as an ingredient in breads of various sorts, indicated here by the word, words anything leavened, was a method sometimes employed to enable people to consume blood in a palatable way. Of special interest in this connection is the fact that Jesus did allow, even required, the drinking of blood symbolically in the observance of the Lord's Supper. In this regard, the Lord's Supper is actually a purer symbol of the transfer of life from the sacrificial lamb, that is Christ, to the worshiper than any sacrifice in the Old Testament could be, in which the lamb's death was simply understood 
as a substitute for that of the worshiper. You never thought that that verse in the middle of Exodus 23 was going to connect you back to the Lord's Supper we had last week, did you? Later in verse 18, the fat of my festival offering must not remain until morning. Fat left out, unrefrigerated, spoils quickly and smells bad. More to the point, the fat of a sacrifice always belonged to the Lord. It was supposed to be burned up so that the smoke of its fire rose to the Lord as a fragrant offering. Leaving the fat out, unburned, disregarded, was disrespectful to God. Verse 19, the third command. Bring the best of the first fruits to your land, to the house of the Lord your God. Now, what's that about? Well, just go to Genesis chapter 4 and read the story of Cain and Abel to learn how important it is to God that he always receive the first fruits of our labor. As we consider our expenditures, it's God first, everything else after that. If we do this consistently, it strengthens our devotion to the Lord. And now we come to everyone's favorite. You must not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Kids, now students, just don't do it. Okay? Someone, someone comes up to you at school, says, hey, you want to boil a kid and it's mother's milk meet me behind the school at 3.30 no don't do it this is actually one of three places Exodus 34.26 Deuteronomy 14.21 being the others that prohibit this practice so think about that God says this in his word three times bottom line this command appears to be a measure to help distinguish Israel from her more mystical neighbors. Remember, Israel was being prepared to take possession of the lands of nations that deeply ingrained fertility and virility rituals into their religious practices. If goat's meat can nourish the human body on its own, then a young goat, which is full of vitality, boiled in its mother's milks, super nourishing, closely connected to mother source of life, Well, you follow that logic, then it should give those who consume it a big power boost. You know, you got a wrestling match the next day, make sure you have your your boiled goat. And that was the idea, but not for God's people. The Lord was their God. He was their life. He was their strength. They need not resort to such manipulations and incantations to find power. They had all they needed and more in the Lord himself, as do we. Festivals, food, and now we find faith, the focus of verses 20 through 31. Now, we're not going to read all of these, but basically, as you go from verse 20 to 31, you scan that. What's happening here is the Lord is telling them a little bit about the conquest of the promised land that is to come and the way in which it is to be done. And he makes a series of promises and warnings to his people about how that should be done and what happens if they don't do it the way he's laying it out. He talks about sending an angel before them, how they're basically not going to have to fight battles. They're just going to walk in and the people will already be scared. They'll already be driven off. 
uh, and, and he warns them against not adopting their practices, but instead keeping uh, fidelity with the Lord. Uh, and, and so he lays all of this out before them. He even tells them the map, the borders of the land, what it's all going to be like. Now, again, I appreciate uh, what Stuart in the New American Commentary has to say about this section. He says, a, a natural question might arise from this material. What's, what's it doing here? After all, this is a passage of promise and warning. So how does it fit within the typical legal material? Part of the answer comes in noting that all Old Testament law is promise and warning. Indeed, Israel's law was not merely a law code, but a covenant, a national agreement with Yahweh, whose purpose was to help people entrust themselves fully to him and live all of life under his gracious rule, not just a set of rules to control their behavior. Now, I'm personally convinced that the angel in verses 20 through 23 is not God himself, but God's name is in the angel. Much as Christians bear the name of Christ and we walk before the watching world in his name, this angel was sent to go before them and win the battles before they would even need to be fought. God was determined to ensure that he received the glory and no one else. What an amazing campaign it would have been if God's people had actually obeyed. Now, I know I'm reading a lot from Stuart, but he has so many good things to say, and it was very helpful this week uh, to look at things through that perspective. So I want to quote him one more time. The people could not hope to enjoy God's benefits, including his abiding protection, if they tried to make decisions on their own. Would they be so stupid and headstrong as to try to arrange for their own invasion of the promised land rather than follow, faith, follow faithfully his leading? Um, yes. Yes, they would. And sadly, so would we. That was exactly what they eventually did after learning that they might not be able to enter the promised land as soon as they had hoped by reason of their own lack of courage. Knowing their capability to disobey, God reminded them sternly that only through obedience to his leadership and word would they prosper in the conquest of Canaan. So what is all this talk about the conquest of the promised land? What's the purpose of all these promises and warnings? Well, some of those promises are pretty amazing, right? I mean, look at verses 25 and 26. God promises them an abundant supply of food and drink, no miscarriages or childlessness, and too many of us know that heartbreak. And no one died too young. That one certainly stings today. So what's going on? Well, as Billy Joel is always reminding us, it's all about soul. Now, do you have it playing in your head? Anybody else? The soul of the nation of Israel was bound up in the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. The land meant so much more to them than any other nation. This land was their land by divine grant. Their obedience to the, law, to the law was supposed to distinguish them from other nations on earth and serve to usher in the Messiah as they served as a nation of priests to the rest of the world. Now that was a, a mission that God would still accomplish, but through the church, 
which itself is called a royal priesthood, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You see, long after Israel had been exiled from the land, after God had removed his temp- glory from the temple, we've been reading about that in Jeremiah and Ezekiel in our, our Bible reading plan, and after Israel had become subjugated to one foreign power after another until it groaned mightily under the Roman Empire when the Messiah finally came. Israel had been set apart. It was the very soul of the nation to demonstrate the righteousness and holiness of God to a watching world. Did I mention that purpose has now been transferred to the church? Did I cover that? Okay. The fourth area of worship we see here is in verses 32 and 33. We're called for our fidelity, our very hearts. You must, this is verse 32 and 33, you must not make a covenant with them or their gods. They must not remain in your land or else they will make you sin against me. If you serve their gods, it will be a snare for you. Finally, Israel was challenged with fidelity to the Lord. This covenant was a binding and exclusive agreement. Verses 32 and 33 form a divine non-compete agreement, if you will. There must be no room in the heart of any of God's people for any other gods or tolerance for sin. By our own strength and righteousness, this is impossible. It takes a lifetime of sanctification and the glorification found only after this life to fully achieve. But this is what God's people were called to pursue, holiness. Being set apart so that we, as a reflection of God's light, do function as a city on the hill. I implore you to thank the Lord for his grace and mercy because because as it is made new to us every, every morning, his grace and mercy places our failure to meet this standard on Christ and gives us his perfect obedience in exchange. Israel, as you may know, failed miserably through the even though the same grace was available to them. And this brings us to the middle of our passage, verse 13. Back full circle to the Ten Commandments. Verse 13 says, Pay strict attention to everything I have said to you. You must not invoke the name of other gods. They must not be heard on your lips. You know what one commentator pointed out about that? It was seen in written documents and later passages of Scripture. The names of other gods were actually woven into the names of individuals, Israelites themselves. So, you know, you might have a neighbor named Buddha, okay, like that. They just weren't able to do this. Of course, this harkens back to the first commandment, which is, no other gods before me. And what, so what was all this for? And by all of this, I mean the case law about slaves and, and committing oneself to lifelong service of one's master, about the value of property and of human life, about theft and about protecting the vulnerable. What was all of this about? Well, it was about creating a nation, a people, who would serve as God's ambassadors to the world who had no law of their own. 
They had not been chosen from among the world like Israel, but they still needed to know the Lord. So I understand that Disciple Now this year was about Q&A, questions and answers. Is that right? Uh, So who shot first, Han or Greta? Han, thank you. So I have two questions for us in application. First, are you resting in Christ? Are you resting in Christ? God's Sabbath rest is described for us in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Personally, I believe God's Sabbath rest has two applications for, applications for believers. First, I believe it has the application that it is the reward for faithful service that awaits us in eternity. But second, it is also the state of being for Christians in this life as well. What I mean by that is this. Even as we work for the glory of the Lord and his kingdom, we don't do this to earn anything from him or to place him in our debt. Our work is a fruit of the ongoing transformation that happens through the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer. While that is happening, we should still experience a peace, a a continuing rest, knowing that Jesus has already done all that is needed to be received by him in eternity. We are not working for that. The pressure's not on. It's not on our shoulders. We live in that rest and in expectation of the full provision of that rest in eternity. Are you resting in Christ? Have you truly trusted in him for your peace, for your salvation? Second, are you conquering in Jesus' name? Are you conquering in Jesus' name? Now, for the Christian... We have not been given a plot of land that we're supposed to fight over or anything like that. For the Christian, the land we need to conquer is our own sinful heart. It's right here. Our own flesh. So are you fighting your sin? Or like the Israelites did, are you tolerating it? Are you accommodating it? even adopting its ways, thereby trampling the blood of Christ as we are severely warned not to do in Hebrews 10, 29. You know why it's easy to be a subject of the queen and now the king of England? It's actually very easy. You know why? Because I'm here and they're over there. You see, I'm not really subject to them, am I? Little thing called the American Revolution took care of that. But how many of us, how many of us, including those who call themselves Christians, deal with God on a similar basis? We keep him at a distance. We like him there, don't we? We love the pageantry, the pomp and circumstance, Oh, oh, the worship, the music today was great. What a great show. The lighting, you know, we, the glamour of royalty. 
But don't ask us to actually live and die for our king. God was ready to lead his people to the land he was giving them. All he asked them for was everything. And it's a steal, by the way. Because God will always outgive everything you give to him. I'm not talking about material things or wealth or health or smooth sailing. But when eternity is included in the calculations, what we face here are light and momentary trials. He asks for everything, but he gives us so much more in return. But it, it is not a king that we keep at a distance and we just we keep around for nice parties. It's a whole lifestyle. It's a fully encompassing, impacts every aspect of life calling to worship. 